This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. You're listening to Bookmark with me, Uma Pagan Ampike Pagan. With the Winter Olympics just weeks away, I decided to catch up with my friend, author David Goldblatt, for a conversation about the history and legacy of the Olympic Games. David, can I get you to very quickly just introduce yourself? Hello, my name is and what you do. Sure. Hi, my name's David Goldblatt. I'm a writer, a broadcaster, an academic, and uh, my latest book is The Games, A Global History of the Olympics. So before we go down that road, though, I've got to ask you, and let me start by asking you, which were your first Olympics and what do you remember about them? Um, I think my first Olympics that I can actually remember is 1972 so I'd have been seven and it's the Munich Games and you know it's so hard you know to remember what it is that you absorbed later and what it is you actually remember from the time itself and actually rather than the um, the Munich Massacre of 1972 what I remembered as a seven-year-old child was Mary Peters who was competing a Northern Irish woman who was competing uh, for Britain in the uh, women's pentathlon, as it was in those days. It wasn't even a heptathlon, it was a pentathlon. I think she won the gold medal. And I can just sort of see the colours of the television of that era, and I can see her crying when she gets a gold medal. And that's just the sort of, you know, yeah, that's the dimmest sort of memories that I have of, uh, of the first Olympics. That's funny. Seven years old seems to be a good age for Olympics. My first Olympics that I remember was the same. I was seven years old. It was Seoul in 1988. And it had nothing to do with the sport, but it had everything to do with Whitney Houston in one moment in time. (laughs) Where does Whitney Houston get played during the Seoul Games? You know how they have an Olympic soundtrack album every year? Yeah, and I remember sure. my sister being obsessed with Whitney Houston at the time, <laughs> and we had one moment in time playing all the time over and over again. <laughs> it's funny how these songs get just absolutely locked for one reason uh, or another. It's like when people recall the 1990 World Cup here, all they can hear is um, Nessan Dorma. That's right. <laughs> Um, and it's, yeah, you know, what's the television kind of? And sometimes the music completely passes you by. Uh, and other times, you, I know that feeling, you can't get it out of your head. So, David, give me a quick and dirty history on the rebirth of the Olympics, on the modern Olympics. So in the 19th century, quite a lot of folks are thinking about reviving the ancient Olympics in some way. I mean, in part because... Finally, lots of people know what the Olympics is, the ancient Olympics, because um, the Greek texts uh, and the Roman texts that have been lost for a long time are translated and rediscovered in the Renaissance and people are absorbing this stuff. And then in the 19th century, actually, there are kind of new sporting cultures emerging all across Europe, North America, which are trying to sort of connect to this in some way. And so you have a tiny little sort of Swedish Olympics in the 1830s. You have a uh, three days of Olympic sport, as it was called in, during the French Revolution in, uh, in central Paris. You have Greek nationalists basically attempting to revive the ancient games as a way of connecting the newly born Greek nation state independent from the Ottoman Empire in 1831 
you know, to this sort of great ancient Hellenic heritage. And you have things called the Zapas Games, funded by a fabulously wealthy, ethnically Greek, but living in Romania, shipping magnate. But the really sort of decisive push, I think, comes from Britain, where, you know, most, so many modern sports are being codified and the public school ethics of sport is so strong. And you have uh, an attempt, a sort of strange revival called the Much Wenlock Olympics, which are a kind of Shropshire rural games fronted by a man called Dr. Penny Brooks, who is a kind of Victorian philanthropist who wants the rural working classes to enjoy the benefits of sport and exercise. And he ends up actually introducing the concept, really, of the ancient Olympics and its revival to Baron de Coubertin, who is known as the founder of the Games. And he's a French Catholic aristocrat who's become obsessed with um, the public school sports ethic as a way of reviving and transforming France. And uh, he goes to see Dr. Penny Brooks to discuss athletic events and the virtues of physical education in 1891 and is introduced to all of this revivalist idea, which actually hitherto he'd not been particularly interested in. Anyway, smart man, a year later, he puts out a call to revive the ancient Olympics. And unlike any of the other attempts, which all fizzle out, this guy is connected. I mean, in the kind of politics of European diplomacy in the 19th century, if you were an aristocrat, you could sort of call these, you know, international conferences and the great good would come to discuss matters of, you know, international rulemaking and importance. And this was sort of one amongst many. But he was a fabulously well-connected and extremely good networker. And he pulls together, you know, 100 people in Paris in 1894 from a variety of sporting organizations and countries um, from, uh, from the West and uh, persuades the Greek royal family, in effect, to back it, who are actually Germans but are uh, looking for all sorts of ways to impress their Greek credentials. <laughs> and he builds this little coalition that unbelievably make the thing happen in 1896 in Athens. 251 athletes come. They are, to a man, all white men, uh, overwhelmingly with wax moustaches, but for the clean-cut college kids from Boston Athletics. And they're, you know, from the US. You know, they're from, they're from the rich powers. And what de Coubertin has created here, and people, you know, uh, have forgotten this, is his description, you know, his vision of the games is to be a display of manly virtue for which the reward is the polite applause of women. And what we have is a kind of neo-Hellenic cult of the amateur athletic gentlemen of late 19th century, you know, Europe and North America, for whom sport is a way of learning the esprit de corps, the moral righteousness and the physical strength to go and rule the various empires and unwashed masses that are currently under their control. And this is a very, very far cry from what we, you know, we think the Olympics are about now or indeed have been. I mean, their idea of amateurism, which is the other thing that the sort of moral position that the uh, the Olympics falls back on to justify or explain what's going on is not really about moral purity or protecting, you know, sport from the grubby forces of commercialism. It's a form of class exclusion because what it's saying is if you are not an aristocratic gentleman of means, then you can't take part. How, how are you going to train? Or indeed, you know, you can't benefit from this in a financial manner. If you look, for example, at the Henley Regatta, which is the main rowing organization 
of great prestige in uh, in Britain in the late 1890s, and one on which Baron de Coubertin based the governance structure of the IOC. He was a huge fan. So their thing is that you can't compete at the Henley Regatta in the finest rowing races. A, if you've ever taken prize money or wages, you know, from competitive rowing. But B, if you've ever taken money from any kind of manual labour. <laughs> that is fantastic. It's worth remembering that, you know, the notion of amateurism, which was, you know, by both Baron de Coubertin and his successors for sort of five or six decades would say, but look, look how it was in ancient Greece. And, of course, there were no cash prizes at the, uh, at the ancient Olympics, which distinguished it, say, from the Isthmian Games or the Pythian Games, which were also large sort of multi-sport ritual events. But, you know, the athletes that competed at Olympia, you know, were um, part of a much wider, more complex um, athletic and body culture all over the kind of Hellenic world in which prize-giving, wages, rewards, monetary and non-monetary were absolutely absolutely the norm and uh, nobody was banned from going to Olympia because that had happened and nor did anybody raise an eyebrow when you went home from Olympia with your laurels and suddenly you know status money land slaves comes your way so it is the most heinous and I have to say sort of slapdash reading of the ancient sources you know to claim that Olympia and ancient Greece provides a sort of moral and practical template for amateurism. It's, it, it's an invention. You know, it's watching the 1988 Seoul Olympic opening ceremony where the order was that you let the doves out first and then you lit the flame. And they had this extraordinary Olympic cauldron, just like a 100-foot-high tower with an electronic lift taking three torchbearers up there, super dramatic. And they light the flame. And, of course, there's a 100 doves sitting inside the cauldron that are instant roast chicken at that point. Even in ancient Greece, I guess the initial Olympics were seen as being in preparation for war, which is a far cry from this unity message that the Games have come to peddle every four years. There's a bit of that. I mean, you know, body cultures and the relationship between citizenship, the gymnasium, sport and war is, is complex and varied in Greece. So in some places like Sparta... You know, it's super utilitarian. Of course, you know, you engage in wrestling because this is for war and this is what everybody has to do. Right. In other places, that's actually a much minor. In Athens, to look good, I mean, interesting for the ancient Greeks, to look good is also to be good in a moral sense. It's not just about war. It's about a whole bunch of other kind of virtues and values being expressed and explored through athletics. So it is part of that. And you're right to say, you know, it's a mixed record on, uh, on, on peace. I mean, again, based on a misreading by Baron de Coubertin, is that the people didn't stop fighting when the Olympics were on wars. The Peloponnesian Wars just carried on regardless for decades with the Olympics going on. But what did happen is you got free passage, and that broadly was respected. So even if you were at war with another city-state, you would allow passage, free passage to its citizens on the way to Olympia, and vice versa. But yes, the truce, the whole concept of the truce is... Uh, it is an invention. Baron de Coubertin, interestingly, 
and rarely for those of his sort of class, was very connected to the early peace movement, which was very strong, I mean, basically organizing in Paris in the late 19th century and having peace conferences at the same time that he's having his kind of set up the Olympics conference. And many of the leading members of the... Um, of the peace movement who went on to win the Nobel Prize for Peace are on the letterheads of the original conference called by de Coubertin to establish the IOC. But, you know, of course, sort of putting this into practice and trying to combine that argument with saying, oh, and somehow we're above or beyond politics sort of compromises the whole thing. And I think that's the big takeaway that I got from your book, that this idea of the Olympics as being, as transcending politics, that's completely and entirely untrue, in that it seemed so rooted in ugly politics. The reason that the Olympics can claim this notion of being above politics, which has never been true, is that the people who found it, this narrow circle of white upper-class gentlemen, inside the bubble of their own privilege, their particular ideological outlook and viewpoint is rendered the obvious and unquestionable norm and mere common sense, while everybody else is political. And, and that's the kind of, that's the fallacy on which the whole sort of Olympic movement rests. Despite the dark history of the Olympics, it served as an incredible platform for individual moments of glory. For glory and for challenge and for shame and occasionally for comedy. I mean, I think the kind of dramatic palette, if you like, that the uh, Olympics offer is more than merely winning and glory, though, you know, they're good too. You've got a kind of whole range of things. I mean, I think about Vera Kaslavska, uh, the Czech athlete who won four gold medals at the 1968 Mexico City Olympics. But what we really remember of her is um, her winning the silver medal and coming second in the beam. And, of course, this is all happening in the context of the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia, her homeland, and the brutal suppression of the Prague Spring, which is going on in the background. And the Soviet woman wins the gold medal in the beam. And Kaslavska on color television, live color television, which is the amazing thing about Mexico 68, when the Soviet anthem is played, kind of turns her head away and down. I mean, it's a tiny gesture, but everybody knew what it meant. And that sort of, it offers that kind of poignancy as well. And she paid for that under the new regime in Czechoslovakia. That was basically the end of her athletic career. And of course, things didn't get great in America for a long time, because even after Jesse Owens won, he wasn't featured at all in anything below the Mason-Dixon line. That's right. I mean, you know, the, the achievements of African-American athletes were either ignored or sort of, you know, super racialized by the American press, who was still, for the most part, working within the framework of kind of African primitive natural athletes, etc., 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 so the Black Power Salute of 1968 by John Carlos and Tommy Smith on the 200-metre podium is such a kind of central, powerful and enduringly important part of the Olympic narrative. And the U.S. narrative is that, you know, racism continued to persist deeply in American athletics. I mean, as late as 1968, black athletes are, you know, being excluded from the leading athletics um, associations get an incredibly raw deal within the university college system 
um, which is, of course, where most of them are based. That's why that moment is so important, and 36 is sort of only the beginning of the story. The other kind of great moment, I think, for me in that, that sort of arc is Abibi Bikela winning the, um, the marathon in 1960, a member of Haile Selassie's Imperial Guard, who less than 30 years beforehand had been expelled from uh, Ethiopia by the invading Italian army, which colonized it. And they are back in Rome in 1960, and this dude goes and wins the marathon in bare feet and passes, does it, passing the uh, one of the great sort of monuments of Ethiopia, this huge sort of uh, stone needle, ancient stone needle that Mussolini's armies had stolen. And there he is running past it and wins by running under the triumphal arch of Constantine. You want a post-colonial moment of post-colonial triumph, you really... Nothing really compares quite to that. And I think that's what captures the imaginations of people. Despite the history of the Olympics, despite the fact that the grand lofty vision may be rooted in white imperialism, there are these small moments of the woman who bows her head when the Soviet national anthem is playing about this guy running in bare feet. Those are the moments we remember and chalk it up to being a part of the spirit of the Olympics, that it can only happen within these days every four years. I mean, obviously, the, the Olympics is this extraordinary platform and some sort of amazing statements, you know, and amazing performances, and all of this is true. I'm finding personally, and I don't think I'm alone in this, finding it harder and harder, A, to just see this, given the, the madness of the preparations and the politics that goes on around it, and be the evident and accumulating costs and disbenefits that are un, unequally shouldered by the host city and almost invariably the poorest people in the host cities of the Games. And Rio 2016 is just the latest in a long line of absolutely disastrous Olympic urbanism. And also, you know, as we can see from the, the whole issue of um, the Russian state-sponsored drug program, at the centre of a really disgraceful and disastrous level of governance in international sport. I'm struggling. I'm struggling. I want, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing Usain Bolt do it for a third time and be the world's most charismatic and extraordinary athlete. But I'm also thinking about all the people who've been shifted out of their houses and stuck in the periphery and the mad and insane rake-offs in the building of Olympic infrastructure and so on and so forth. And the balance is tilting and tilting and tilting to the point where I think unless there is a really, really, really serious reform, the it's going to be hard for me personally to watch them and to find those moments and to shed my cynicism enough to kind of open my heart to these things. So there is no truth then to the notion that these massive global events are in fact economic stimulants. Barcelona was an anomaly. Barcelona was, was definitely a one-off. I mean, people forget with Barcelona that it wasn't a catalyst that then made stuff happen, which is invariably how Olympics are spoken about today, and with, you know, seven years to get it all together. But came at the end, it was the crowning of achievement of 17 years of post-Franco development under a very focused and singular administration on which the Spanish and Catalan state had spent in today's terms something of the order of, 
I don't know, $10 billion. So it was neither cheap, nor did it come out of the blue. Plus, you know, Barcelona genuinely had some hidden gems. Who can sort of boast Picasso and Miro and Montjuic and the Sagrada Familia? And this is like very few cities have got that hidden away and with a new Mediterranean sort of coastline to boot. So it is unrepeatable, I would think, for most cities and sort of inappropriate. Don't take my word for it. I mean, have a look at something like Andrew Zimbalist's fantastic Circus Maximus, which is a brilliant synthesis of all of the research that has been done on whether the Olympics brings economics, long-term employment opportunities, changes growth, raises uh, human well-being and happiness, leaves useful infrastructure, raises tourism levels, etc. None of these things are true. None of these things are true. And most sadly of all, if you look at London 2012, which was more noisy and to its credit made more effort to say, we will leave a legacy and we will, we will leave a legacy of more people doing more exercise and playing more sport. Because, of course, that's the other kind of trope of uh, justifying the Olympics. And they put themselves out on the line. The consequence is, in 2016, less people in this country are playing sport and doing exercise than they were four years ago. The Olympics seem seem to have gone through these various stages. You know, when, when, when it was refounded again in the 1800s, it was a small group of people, like you said, it was rooted in this grand vision of imperialism and white imperialism. It, it changed when it, when it became the age of television. Now we're going into a completely different age of humanity. And what role does the Olympics play in that age? Because it seems so much of a relic. Mm, mm. It's uh, what a good question. I mean, my sense is, you know, that for the last decade or so, I mean, the Olympics has been an opportunity along with the World Cup for the real change and the real shift in the global balance of economic and political power and the rising, the rising role of the global south and above all the BRICS. That's what the Olympics has been telling us. Beijing 2008, Sochi 2014. Rio 2016, India didn't quite get there, but India actually, it's interesting, you know, managed to do a disastrous Commonwealth Games. And of course, you know, we have Qatar 2022, Russia 2018 World Cup, the Brazil World Cup, South Africa World Cup. So that's looking pretty bricks to me. So it has had that role. I mean, it has done that and it's for both good, for both good and ill. So it continues to sort of show off the changing sort of power structure, I suppose, of, of global politics. And I think it's interesting that um, the next three Olympic Games after this are all in Asia, all in East Asia, South Korea and China for the Winter Olympics and obviously Tokyo 2020. And it's East Asia, you know, which is now clearly the most dynamic economic zone in the world, is sort of shouldering the burden and the era of endless European stroke North American domination of the hosting of the Games and the sort of locus of power in it. Yeah, good, that's shifted. So as a kind of barometer, the Olympics is, uh, is still serving that purpose. Beyond that, I'm really struggling. I'm really, really struggling. You know, when you've got a situation where state-sponsored doping, you know, backed by the nation's secret service, does not result in you being banned from the Games, what is your role in maintaining the integrity, the governance, the transparency 
of global sport, of protecting clean athletes, alongside all of the other stuff that's not being delivered on. Where is the moral compass of the Olympics? Which Thomas Bach, you know, claims is what they're about. I mean, if you read Agenda 2020, for him, he lives under the illusion that the Olympic is a social movement. It's a values, morals-based social movement. And that is not the case. And if it is going to be, and if its event is to live up to that, it's got to be some really big change. That was author David Goldblatt. We have only but scratched the surface for more about the Olympic Games. I highly recommend his book simply called The Games, A Global History of the Olympics. You've been listening to Bookmark. This is BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.